Section 21 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 3 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 40 The Tory Diogenes Rolling His Tub, Part 2. This time, however, he was not successful. The difficulties in his way were too great. It would have been impossible for him to introduce such a reform bill as Mr. Bright would be likely to accept. His own party would not endure such a proposition. He could only go so far as to bring in some bill which might possibly seem to reformers to be doing something for reform, and at the same time might be commended to conservatives on the ground that it really did nothing for it. Mr. Disraeli's reform bill was a curiosity it offered a variety of little innovations which nobody wanted or could have cared about and it left out of sight altogether the one reform which alone gave an excuse for any legislation we have explained more than once that lord grey's reform bill admitted the middle class to legislation but left the working class out what was now wanted was a measure to let the working class in Nobody seriously pretended that any other object than this was sought by those who called out for reform. Yet Mr. Disraeli's scheme made no more account of the working class as a whole than if they already possessed the vote every man of them. It proposed to give a vote in boroughs to persons who had property to the amount of ten pounds a year in the funds, bank stock, or East India stock, to persons who had sixty pounds in a savings bank, to persons receiving pensions in the naval, military, or civil service amounting to twenty pounds a year, to professional men, to graduates of universities, ministers of religion, and certain schoolmasters, in fact, to a great number of persons who either already had the franchise or could have it if they had any interest that way. The only proposition in the bill not absolutely farcical and absurd was that which would have equalized the franchise in counties and in boroughs, making ten pounds the limit in each alike. The English working classes cried out for the franchise, and Mr. Disraeli proposed to answer the cry by giving the vote to graduates of universities, medical practitioners, and schoolmasters. Yet we may judge of the difficulties Mr. Disraeli had to deal with by the reception which even this poor little measure met with from some of his own colleagues. Mr. Walpole and Mr. Henley resigned office rather than have anything to do with it. Mr. Henley was a specimen of the class who might have been described as fine old English gentlemen. He was shrewd, blunt, honest, and narrow, given to broad jokes and to arguments flavoured with a sort of humour which reminded not very faintly of the drollery of Fielding's time. Mr. Walpole was a man of gentle bearing, not by any means a robust politician, nor liberally endowed with intellect or eloquence, but pure-minded and upright enough to satisfy the most exacting. Mr. Walpole wrote to Lord Derby a letter which had a certain simple dignity and pathos in it, to explain the reason for his resignation. He frankly said that the measure which the cabinet were prepared to recommend was one which they should all of them have stoutly opposed, if either Lord Palmerston or Lord John Russell had ventured to bring it forward. 
this seemed to mr walpole reason enough for his declining to have anything to do with it it did not appear to him honourable to support a measure because it had been taken up by one's own party which the party would assuredly have denounced and opposed to the uttermost if it had been brought forward by the other side mr walpole's colleagues no doubt respected his scruples but some probably regarded them with good-natured contempt such a man it was clear was not destined to make much of a way in politics public opinion admired mr walpole and applauded his decision public opinion would have pronounced even more strongly in his favour had it known that at the time of his making his decision and withdrawing from a high official position mr walpole was in circumstances which made the possession of a salary of the utmost importance to him had he even swallowed his scruples and held on a little longer he would have become entitled to a pension he did not appear to have hesitated a moment he was a high-minded gentleman he could very well bear to be poor he could not bear to surrender his self-respect this resignation however so honourable to mr walpole and to mr henley will serve to show how great were the difficulties which then stood in mr disraeli's way probably mr disraeli's own feelings were in favour of a liberally extended suffrage it is not a very rash assumption to conjecture that he looked with contempt on the kind of reasoning which fancied that the safety of a state depends upon the narrowness of its franchise but his bill bore the character of a measure brought in with the object of trying to reconcile irreconcilable claims and principles to be the author of something which should give the government the credit with their opponents of being reformers at heart and with their friends of being non-reformers at heart was apparently the object of mr disraeli the attempt was a complete failure it was vain to preach up the beauty of lateral extension of the franchise as opposed to extension downwards the country saw through the whole imposture at a glance one of mr disraeli's defects as a statesman has always been that he is apt to be just a little too clever for the business he has in hand this ingenious reform bill was a little too clever more matter and less art would have served its turn it was found out in a moment someone described its enfranchising clauses as fancy franchises mr bright introduced the phrase to the house of commons and the clauses never recovered the epithet the savings bank clause provoked immense ridicule suppose it was asked a man draws out a few pounds to get married or to save his aged parent from starvation or to help a friend out of difficulties is it fair that he should be immediately disfranchised as a penalty for being loving and kindly one does not want to make the electoral franchise a sort of montheon prize for the most meritorious of any class but still is it reasonable that a man who is to have a vote as long as he hoards his little sum of money is to forfeit the vote the moment he does a kind or even a prudent thing even as a matter of mere prudence it was very sensibly argued is it not better that a man should do something else with his money than invested in a savings bank which is after all only a safe reversion of the traditional old stocking 
it would be useless to go into any of the discussions which took place on this extraordinary bill it can hardly be said to have been considered seriously it had to be got rid of somehow and therefore lord john russell moved an amendment declaring that no readjustment of the franchise would satisfy the house of commons or the country which did not provide for a greater extension of the suffrage in the cities and boroughs than was contemplated in the government measure perhaps the most remarkable speech made during the debate was that of mr gladstone who accepting neither the bill nor the resolution occupied himself chiefly with an appeal to parliament and public opinion on behalf of small boroughs the argument was ingenious it pointed to the number of eminent men who had been enabled to begin public life very early by means of a nomination for some pocket borough or who having quarrelled with the constituents of a city or county might for a while have been exiled from parliament if some pocket borough or rather pocket borough's master had not admitted them by that little postern gate the argument however went no further than to show that in a civilized country every anomaly however absurd may be turned to some good account if instead of creating small pocket boroughs the english constitutional system had conferred on a few great peers the privilege of nominating members of parliament directly by their own authority this arrangement would undoubtedly work well in some cases beyond all question some of these privileged peers would send into parliament deserving men who otherwise might be temporarily excluded from it the same thing would sometimes happen no doubt if they made over the nomination to their wives or their wives waiting women but the system of pocket boroughs taken as a whole was stuffed with injustice and corruption it worked direct evil in twenty cases for every one case in which it brought about indirect good the purchase of seats in the parliament of paris undoubtedly did good in some cases some of the men for whom seats were bought proved themselves useful and impartial members of that curious tribunal lord john russell's resolution was carried by a majority of three hundred and thirty against two hundred and ninety one or a majority of thirty-nine the government dissolved parliament and appealed to the country the elections did not excite very much public interest they took place during the most critical moments of the war between france and austria while such news was arriving as that of the defeat of magenta and the defeat of solferino the entrance of the emperor of the french and the king of sardinia into milan it was not likely that domestic news of a purely parliamentary interest could occupy all the attention of englishmen it was not merely a great foreign war that the people of these islands looked on with such absorbing interest it was what seemed to be the birth of a new era for europe there were some who felt inclined to echo the celebrated saying of pitt after austerlitz and declare that we might as well roll up the map of europe in the victories of the french many saw the first indications of the manifest destiny of the heir of waterloo the man who represented a defeat to many the strength of the austrian military system had seemed the great bulwark of conservatism in europe and now that was gone shrivelled like a straw in fire shattered like a potsherd surprise bewilderment 
rather than partisan passion of any kind predominated over england in such a condition of things the general election passed over hardly noticed when it was over it was found that the conservatives had gained indeed but had not gained nearly enough to enable them to hold office unless by the toleration of their rivals the rivals soon made up their minds that they had tolerated them long enough a meeting of the liberal party was held at willis's rooms once the scene of almack's famous assemblies there the chiefs of the liberal party met to adjust their several disputes and to arrange on some plan of united action lord palmerston represented one section of the party lord john russell another mr sidney herbert spoke for the peelites not a few persons were surprised to find mr bright among the speakers it was well known that he liked lord palmerston little that it could hardly be said he liked the tories any less but mr bright was for a reform bill from whomever it should come and he thought perhaps that the liberal chiefs had learned a lesson the party contrived to agree upon a principle of action and a compact was entered into the effect of which was soon made clear at the meeting of the new parliament a vote of want of confidence was at once moved by the marquis of huntington eldest son of the duke of devonshire and even then marked out by common report as a future leader of the liberal party lord hardington had sat but a short time in the house of commons and had thus far given no indications of any eloquence or even of any taste for politics nothing could more effectively illustrate one of the peculiarities of the english political system than the choice of the marquis of hardington as the figurehead of this important movement against the tory government lord hardington did not then nor for many years afterwards show any greater capacity for politics than is shown by an ordinary county member he seemed rather below than above the average of the house of commons as leader subsequently of the liberal party in that house he can hardly be said to have shown as yet any higher qualities than a strong good sense and a manly firmness of purpose combined with such skill in debate as constant practice under the most favourable circumstances must give to any man not absolutely devoid of all capacity for self-improvement but even of the moderate abilities which lord hartington proved that he possessed in the conservative parliament of eighteen seventy four he had given no indication in eighteen fifty nine he was put up to move the vote of want of confidence as the heir of the great whig house of devonshire his appearance in the debate would have carried just as much significance with it if he had simply moved his resolution without an accompanying word the debate that followed was long and bitter it was enlivened by more than even the usual amount of personalities mr disraeli and sir james graham had a sharp passage of arms in the course of which sir james graham used an expression that has been often quoted since he described mr disraeli as the red indian of debate who by the use of the tomahawk has cut his way to power and by recurrence to the scalping system hopes to prevent the loss of it the scalping system however did not succeed this time the division when it came on after three nights of discussion 
showed a majority of thirteen in favour of Lord Hartington's motion. The result surprised no one. Everybody knew that the moment the various sections of the Liberal Party contrived a combination, the fate of the ministry was sealed. Willis's rooms had anticipated the decision of St. Stephen's. Rather, perhaps, might it be said that St. Stephen's had only recorded the decision of Willis's rooms. End of section 21.